You know those moments where you think, I wish I would have learned this in school? Those are the topics that we love to talk about. Join me each week as I interview experts sharing their strategies for solving problems that us young adults will face throughout our 20s and 30s. So what are you waiting for? And if you want new episodes about adulting advice every Monday, hit that follow button. We all dread it, but the day eventually comes. It might be a cough that won't go away, a potential sprained ankle, or you're questioning this weird bump on your arm. We have no other option. We have to go see a doctor. How do I book an appointment again? Where's my insurance card? How much is this going to cost me? Healthcare is confusing, frustrating, and overly complex. I do my best to avoid having to see a doctor, but sometimes it is just unavoidable. I have to put my big boy pants on and figure it all out. This is the unglamorous part of being an adult, but with a little bit of help, we can do this. And our help today is Dr. Judson Brandeis, who is here to give us some insight on how the healthcare industry works. My favorite takeaway was how to better prepare for your next doctor's visit. Apparently, the average doctor's visit is 16 minutes and 14 seconds, so if you come prepared with the right notes and the right documentation, not only will you be able to make the most of your time, but these busy professionals will take you seriously too. Dr. Brandeis has an extensive list of credentials, including being named the top urologist in San Francisco, a national leader in technology and innovations in sexual medicine, and the author of The 21st Century Man. Aside from some healthcare 101, we spend the second half of this conversation discussing how to be healthier than 90% of people and what your 20-something self can do to help your future self out. If you're a listener of the show and you haven't left us a rating and review, we'd really appreciate if you did. And if you're new, nothing for you to do. Welcome, sit back, relax, and let's learn something new. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the collegiate triathlete, board-certified urologist, and the prime example of the 21st century man, Dr. Judson Brandeis. Well, Dr. Brandeis, pleasure to have you on the show. I'm really excited for this conversation. And I thought originally booking you being the quote, quote, penis doctor, we would spend the majority of our conversation really talking about that subject. But through research, one of my favorite threads that I heard you talk on was how to make the most of your doctor's visit. And you rattle off the stat. I, I don't know if I had the seconds right, but it's something crazy. Like an average doctor visit is 16 minutes and 14 seconds long. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I, I never even thought to think about how to maximize that time with my doctor and what I could do to potentially prepare for that and, and make that meeting go smoother and more effective. But you have some thoughts on that. Can we open up the thread with that and, and how some 20 or 30 something might actually better prepare for their doctor's visits? I think it's an approach that as a 20 or 30 year old should take in general. You know, like when I speak with my attorneys, my attorneys are like 750 bucks an hour, right? So that's like 11 bucks a minute. So that's like a, I was at Chipotle the other day. Burritos are up to 11 bucks now or 12 <laughs> bucks. Or that's like a burrito a minute, right? So that's expensive. You got to use your time and, and doctor visits are the same way. You really have to be efficient and use your time because the medical space these days, it's all about throughput. It's all about how many patients you can pump through your office. And so the average visit 
you know, is you got 15 minutes max, you know, because doctors have to do paperwork. And so the question is, do you want to get the most out of that doctor visit? And so if you want to get the most out of that doctor visit, you have to give your physician the information that they need in a really efficient way. And so the way to do that is have your whole medical history written down. Have your allergies written down, what medical problems you've had, what surgeries you've had. Do you drink? Do you smoke? What family history do you have? So that the doctor can just look at it and say, okay, I know you. All right. Have you had any labs? Have you had any imaging studies? You know, so that the doctor doesn't have to tell the staff, you know, I waste so much time going and telling my staff, you know, can you get labs on this guy? Can you get the the imaging studies? Okay. Then Give the whole background. Why are you here? If you're coming in for back pain, have you had back pain before? Have you had any back procedures before? What medications have you had? Is it on the right side? Is it on the left side? Is it an acute pain? Is it a deep pain? Is it a throbbing pain? What activities bring that pain on? You know, you can just go on and on and on. Let the doctor figure out what information is relevant and what information is not relevant. And then write down a list of questions. You know, what are the questions that you want answered? in this visit. Because if you don't, you're not going to get your questions asked. And then you're going to have to email the doctor or call the doctor. You're not going to get a call back because doctors are super busy these days. But if you prepare all this and hand it to the doctor at the beginning of the visit, you're going to get a big smile from the doctor. The doctor is going to know that you mean business there, right? Especially if you're younger. You know, if you're like a 60-year-old CEO, you know, coming in with a $50,000 Rolex, the doctor is going to sit up straight and realize, okay, this person means business. You know, I'm going to have to do a really good job. And then the next kid's like a 25-year-old with a ripped Ramones t-shirt and ripped jeans. And the doctor's like, well, let me see how quickly I can get him out of my office because I'm 15 minutes behind because I was talking to that CEO. Mm. And so if you come in really organized, hand the doctor the papers, the doctor is going to smile. I have a dictaphone. So I would just dictate the whole encounter. It would take me about three, four minutes to dictate the whole thing. And then, you know, we're going to talk more deeply about why you're there. You know, let me see if I can figure out what the underlying issue, the underlying problem, the health problems are. If I prescribe a medication for you, I'll be able to talk about the side effects and what, instead of just handing you a piece of paper and saying, you know, just read this about the medication, I'm going to be able to go into a lot more detail because you've made really good use of your time. Hmm. So in general, when you're working with a professional, whether it's your doctor or a lawyer or accountant, you know, someone that's, that's costing you $500 to $800 an hour, make really, really good use of that time. And I think the other big thing, and I heard you rattle it off too, like 50% of men are less likely to go to the doctor as well. And I, it seems like some of that might be because they don't have comfort or familiarity with the doctors, you know, unlike a female. Yeah, I think it's, it's great that you brought up that stat. And it's because men aren't roped into the healthcare system, right? So women in general, these are all generalizations, right? Women have babies, so they have a gynecologist, right? You go to a pediatrician, you're with your pediatrician to your 16, 17, 18. You know, you're 22, you're 23. You're not used to going to the doctor. You don't have a doctor. Like if you're a Kaiser, you have a doctor. But outside of a system, you don't have a doctor. So if you get sick, you don't even know what to do. Whereas women, you know, they have a gynecologist, so they have a point of contact with the healthcare system. They know where their health insurance card is. I bet you probably half your listeners don't even know where their health insurance card is. You know, I didn't at that age. 
Mm. You know, I never got sick. Right. And then the other thing is women will take their kids to the, you know, the pediatrician. I mean, I have guys that are like nuclear physicists that work for the Lawrence Livermore lab, which is not too far from where I am. And I ask them, I'm like, do you have a PPO or an HMO? And they just look at me like, you know, like if they asked me a math question, you know, <laughs> I'd be like, I don't know. <laughs> they're like, you know, these are guys that have such advanced education and they're like, what, what is it? PPO versus an HMO. So, you know, I, I wrote a book called The 21st Century Man, and there's an amazing chapter written by a health insurance executive on understanding health insurance, especially if you're 30, 35, 40 years old, uh, listening to the podcast and you're starting your own company and you're giving people health insurance, you're going to have to make those decisions for your, for your people. What insurance are you going to buy? If you don't even know the difference between an HMO and a PPO, uh, it's going to be hard to make a good decision. So, you know, read the chapter in that book and you'll understand. It even goes into vision. It goes into dental. It goes into, you know, all the aspects. Healthcare insurance is not just for the 60s and 70s and 80s. And if you're in the younger demographic, understand that your healthcare dollars are subsidizing the 50, 60, 70-year-old, 80-year-old folks in this country. Uh, and so you got to make really good health insurance choices because those people are expensive to take care of. And if we sort of spend all our money on taking care of those folks, by the time you guys get around to be retired, there ain't going to be anything left. Can you give us some of the highlights of that chapter? Like, what are some things, some takeaways that we should understand? Like, for me, I moved to a new city and I was like, I probably should find some kind of like primary physician, right? But then I got into the whole, like, I don't even really know how to do that. Do I just Google doctors in, in Austin? Like, what is... How do you go about even finding a, a doctor? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, even in the Bay Area, which has very high level professionals, it's really, really hard to get a good primary care physician. Why? I mean, it, it just is because it's a less lucrative form of medicine. So fewer people go into it. You know, it's enormously expensive to get through medical school. And then you spend another four to six years of your life in residency or making 40,000 bucks a year and working hundred hours a week. And so by the time most of us get out of medical school and residency and into the working world, it's like we're at 30 plus, you know, you got a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. Would you become a pediatrician or a primary care physician where you're making 150, $200,000 a year, you know, or would you go into something more lucrative like orthopedics or GI or whatever, where you can make more money and pay off your loans and live the lifestyle that your college friends are all already enjoying? And so a lot of folks don't go into primary care. Personal recommendations are really good. You know, talk to other folks who have had good experiences with their, with their physicians. But also, you have access to the same information that medical professionals have these days. You know, when I was doing research at Harvard Medical School, the Harvard Medical School Library was the biggest library, medical library in the world. A million volumes. It was beautiful, big white columns and everything like that. And people from around the world would fly in to go to Harvard Medical School Library to look up obscure journal articles. Now on your cell phone, you got the same access that they have at the Harvard Medical School Library. And there are a lot of really good medical resources, you know, not just WebMD, but, you know, if you have a specific medical issue, there's like, you know, the Juvenile Rheumatoid Arthritis Foundation or the Diabetes Foundation. There's some really good information. And if you 
you know, I tell my patients that, you know, the stuff that I produce, it's not C-spot run. You know, you're going to have to put some time and effort into learning it and understanding it. But for the most part, it's pretty understandable. And, you know, a lot of doctors will resent their patients for bringing in Google information or consulting Dr. Google, but I love it. I think yeah. it's great. You know, I'm just one person. I can't get to every single journal article and obscure, you know, especially in sexual medicine, guys, you know, guys are they'll be trawling the internet at all hours of the night trying to find new and interesting stuff. So yeah, they bring it to me. And, you know, 80% of the time I already know about it. 10% of the time it's just junk. Uh, and 10% of the time I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Let me look into it. Mm. One more healthcare question before we we move on to our next thread here too. You've been in the healthcare space for, I don't know, what, 20 plus years now at this point in time. What's a problem in healthcare that you still can't believe isn't fixed? Oh, the the whole economics of the healthcare system is just a catastrophe. What do you mean by that? It's, it's unsustainable. I mean, we spend 20% of our GDP on healthcare and our outcomes are worse than almost every other industrialized country in the world. And it's getting worse. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. And part of it is the system and part of it is the way that people take care of themselves in this country. I mean, it's, it's so multifactorial and, and part of it is, is our priorities, right? We spend enormous amounts of money on the last years of life. I think it depends on who you talk to, but you know, 30% of your healthcare expenses, 35% are in the last years of your life. Mm. You know, is it really worth it giving grandma her sixth heart bypass or doing a hip replacement in a 95 year old person? You know, we have to accept that there's not enough money. You know, our government's $31 trillion in the hole. So why are we spending three, four trillion dollars a year on healthcare? A lot of it is not fraudulent. You know, if it's your grandmother, it's not wasteful. It's if it's someone else's grandmother, it's wasteful. So as a society, you have to make decisions about how you want to allocate resources. But in this country, it's just carte blanche. You know, it's like a buffet. And until someone starts making really difficult decisions about what we can and can't have, your generation is going to end up paying for future generations, you know, and there's not going to be anything left for you. If you had a magic wand and you also had the responsibility to fix that problem, what, what would you try on that? Like what's... Yeah, I mean, well, the thing is in the current medical system, in the current political system, it's unfixable. Because anytime somebody brings something like that up, people start screaming about death panels and the gray-haired folks in this country are very organized. They have the, you know, the ARP and they have lobbying groups and, you know, where the 20-year-olds are hustling, trying to make careers and trying to get jobs and, and don't really know as much about healthcare insurance because they're not going to the doctor. You know, the folks in their 60s and 70s, they're going to the doctors every week. They know how much it costs. And if you try to pull Medicare or you try to increase their co-pays or you can try to take away their drug benefits, they'll crush you. You know, they'll, they'll be knocking on their senator and congressman's doors and sending emails out and sending letters out. And, you know, they're the ones that are volunteering. And so it's going to be, it's a real uphill battle for the millennials to try to take on the lobbies that are really entrenched. Yeah. I don't even want to try that. So that sounds so, exhausting. I mean, you know, like I was, I was uh, the, the chief of urology for a, a major Bay Area HMO. 
And the CEO of the company is a really, really bright guy. And this was 10 years ago. And he said, you know, if you gave me carte blanche, you know, a magic wand to fix things, he said, I wouldn't even know where to start. Mm. You know, and this camera in a big healthcare company. So it's, you know, as a, as a consumer, as a 20 or 30 something, you got to educate yourself. You got to know what, what's going on. You have to understand the system because the system's taking your money. You're paying 10, 15,000 bucks a year in health insurance and you're using 500 bucks a year, Yeah, you know, to get vaccinated. Right. So they're just someone stealing 10, 15,000 bucks a year from you. Yeah. I think the word stealing brings up some negative connotation. Of course, I don't mind subsidizing my grandma's health insurance. I want to see her live the longest, healthiest, happiest life she can. But I am not necessarily enthused about the fact that I feel like we're just flippersly spending these healthcare dollars without really. It's a generational transfer. You know, there was a movie, I forget what his name, it was like, like with Denzel Washington, John Q. Public, right? His kid needed a heart transplant. Yep. He like held the hospital hostage till his kid got the heart transplant. Everyone rallied around him, whatever. But think about it this way. A heart transplant, because I used to participate in them, the, that's probably a half million bucks to a million bucks of healthcare for one person for one year, right? And there's no guarantee it's going to work and there's no guarantee that person's going to live forever. So what if they posed to that mining town? This child could have a heart transplant, but no one else in the whole town for the entire year could have health care. Or this poor kid's going to die, but everyone gets health care. Then that's the decision that we really are facing. And it's going to smack us in the face pretty soon. Pretty soon means three, four, five, seven, ten years. But that's the decision that we're going to have to make. Does this cute little boy get a heart transplant or does everyone else get basic health care? Anyway, let's talk about penises or something more <laughs> uplifting. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's flip the script. And, and I maybe, don't want to depress, but you know, that I ended up lecturing. But that's what my wife and kids tell me all the time. Ah, oh, dad, you're just lecturing us. Uh, lecture away. Dr. Brandeis, that's why we have you on. You know so much, and and just to put a an end on that that thread too. That's John Q was the movie. If anybody's yeah, interested yeah. in that, I, I know I saw the the previous. Yeah, words. I mean, think watch the movie with a different mindset of of a limited resources. How do you want to allocate limited resources? Mm -hmm. Well, that frustrates me a lot because I feel like I don't necessarily have as much control on that aspect. So let's shift the conversation to something that I feel like I do have a little bit more control over, and that's some preventative techniques. If I'm going to stake my, my, my flag in the ground and, and say, hey, we need to be doing this, I also need to be responsible for my own healthcare so that I don't become a burden on the healthcare system at 50, 60, 70 plus as well. And there are things that we can be doing in our 20s and 30s to really set ourselves up for that so that I'm not in your office whenever I'm turning 50 or whenever I'm turning 60 as well. So I know you have a great thread on how to be healthier than 90% of people in 10 seconds. Could you mind doing that for oh, me? Oh, yeah, and, that's easy. And I won't, I won't timestamp you here, but I know you can get it done in 10 yeah, seconds. Yeah, absolutely. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't do drugs, don't eat too much, exercise every day, stretch every morning, meditate, sleep well, be nice to other people. So simple and easy. Yeah. Well, simple, but not necessarily always easy to execute. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the world is full of stress and we all have coping mechanisms. 
if I get pissed off or depressed or whatever, I just go straight to the freezer, bust out some ice cream. <laughs> you know, like ice cream is just my, I just love ice cream. It's my I mean, vice. it's just like, yeah, it's like, you know, you got like chocolate or, you know, so you got the sugar in there. Some of them you have in some salt now and then it's <laughs> cold and it's, you know, it's like it's creamy. And I mean, what could be better than ice cream? You know, and I have high cholesterol, not super high. And everyone in my family dies of heart attacks, not, you know, at super young age. So, you know, I know it's bad for me. Uh, and so I'm on a cholesterol medication for that because I just can't not eat ice cream. Do you, do you put parameters around that or no, rules, guidelines, bumpers, anything? I, I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't do drugs. You know, I don't have a lot of bad habits. But that's my one bad habit. That's totally fine too. Yeah, I'm a Sunday night bowl of ice cream kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah, I like clockwork. It's just, yeah, definitely my vice of choice yeah. as well. And a reward, honestly, for like eating so healthy by you know 75% of the other meals that I have as well. Can you share the ABC method too? And is this an applicable exercise routine you think for a 20, 30 something? Or is this just prescribed for 50, 60s? Well, no, I mean, I think it works for everyone. If you're younger and you're training for a sport, then you train in general. But for most of my patients, I'm training them for life. Mm-hmm. And when you're in your 20s and 30s, you're pretty much bomb-proof. Like you really are. I mean, I think about all like the stupid stuff. We would go out like and when I was a resident, I was a resident from the age of 26 to 32 or something like that. You know, we'd go out to all hours of the night and then get two hours of sleep and then come in and pull a 36 hour shift and, you know, be in surgery and taking care of really sick people. And you could just do that, right? You had the energy, you had the, but if you do that too much and if you take in substances that you shouldn't take in and you start eating processed and foods that aren't all that great for you, it'll take a toll on you. And it won't take a toll in your 20s and 30s when you think you're totally bombproof and you pretty much are, but it'll begin to take your toll in your 40s or 50s or 60s or 70s. There was this huge study called the Massachusetts Male Aging Study, the biggest study of aging ever done in the United States. And what they found is 40% of guys in their 40s have some degree of erectile dysfunction. 50% of guys in their 50s, 60% of guys in their 60s, 70% of guys in their 70s, right? So Guys in their 20s and 30s, you're fine. But do you want to be 45 and popping Viagra? Do you want to be 55 coming into my office saying, Viagra doesn't work anymore. And, you know, I'm putting you on the body composition scan and I'm telling you, listen, you're 50 pounds overweight and your, your muscles are weak and, you know, your circulation sucks. And listen, you got type 2 diabetes now. I mean, these are, these are all really real problems. Half of men in the United States by the end of the decade will be overweight or fat, obese, right? Half. That's a big, big number, right? And part of it is because we live in a sedentary society. You know, back in the day, 200 years ago, people were working on the farm, you know, that would keep you in shape. There wasn't nearly the calorie concentration of foods I was at Chipotle the other day. There's like a burrito, it's eight, 900 calories. You know, and people think you can work yourself out of that, right? But at workout, you burn 500 calories an hour, right? If you're working pretty hard. So you got to work out for two hours to get rid of a burrito. That's a lot. It's a lot. That's a lot, right? And I was at Starbucks and I had a, like one of those fancy coffees. 
And it was like 650 calories or something like that. That's a lot. Unfortunately, I like working out, but I put all my patients on high protein, low carb, uh, healthy fat, high fiber diets, right? Mm -hmm. And almost every successful diet is based on those principles. You can call it what you want. You can call it South Beach. You can call it the Justin diet. You can call it the Austin diet, the Texas diet, whatever. (laughs) Um, But I don't get caught up in the details, right? I had a patient come to meet me the other day. He's like, what do you think is better, buffalo protein or beef? I thought I heard a lot of really good stuff about buffalo protein. I don't know. I don't care. (laughs) I know that proteins are made of amino acids. And I think there's like 20 essential amino acids. So every protein ever made, you know, in biology, whether it's beef, buffalo, fish, lentils, or eggs, is going to be made up of those 20 amino acids. And when those that protein gets into your stomach and gets broken up, you know, by pancreatic enzymes and then gets absorbed by the intestines as building blocks of amino acids and that gets remade into other proteins in your body, it doesn't matter what the source of the protein was. It's not really the protein, it's what comes along with the protein. Mm. You know, if you get if you're in Texas and you get your protein seared on a barbecue and there are carcinogens in in the coals or whatever, and you're taking that in, it's probably not great for you. But the protein is protein. Yeah. Or everything else that goes along with the cheeseburger, you know, exactly. not necessarily the patty, but the exactly giant lump of mayo and so, bread and yeah. fries. So, you know, the ABC is just based on what I know about fitness and what I know about human physiology. And I was a triathlete and a, a collegiate cross country and track runner. So I know a little bit about athletics. And so I know that as you get older, it takes longer to recover. So it probably takes you two days to recover. I also know that there's a ton of muscles in the body. So if you're doing the same thing every day, you're not going to build muscles all out throughout your body, right? You're going to only try to build muscle in one particular area and you're not going to do a good job of it because all those guys that were doing Peloton during during COVID, they didn't build any muscle because you need sleep, you need protein, you need vitamins and minerals to build muscle and you need rest. So if you're working out the same muscle every day, you're never giving that muscle an opportunity to build. Now you're burning calories and you're building cardiovascular fitness, but you're not building muscle. So A is ambulate. So walk, run, Stairmaster, and you can substitute rowing. You can substitute swimming. It's just ABC made a, a good thing to, to remember. Ambulate is cardio one. B is for bike. And I like biking because you can do interval training. What do you mean? So I, I have a testing device in my office, a VO2 max tester. So it's an exercise bike with a mask and we monitor oxygen and carbon dioxide. And I take people to their aerobic threshold and we see what their aerobic threshold is, right? And that's a really, really good indicator of someone's athletic potential and athletic fitness, right? And in order to build your VO2 max, as opposed to building your bicep muscle where you can lift more weight, the VO2 max is a much more important metric. In order to build your VO2 max, you need exercises that take you to their aerobic threshold, right? Take you from where you're using oxygen, matching oxygen with glucose. Remember from high school biology, the Krebs cycle, you're kicking out 36 ATPs. ATP is the unit of energy that we use in our body. You're kicking out 36 ATPs till you take that to the point where you can't take in enough oxygen to match it with glucose and then you start making lactic acid and you're only making two ATPs per molecule of glucose, 
right? That's your aerobic threshold. And that is the, the most accurate predictor of longevity that we have. And the higher you can push your cardiovascular fitness, because really everything happens with circulation, the better off your overall health is going to be. And then C is circuit training, right? So when you're 20 and you want a beach body, you go to the gym and you put as much weight on as you possibly can and you try to get as many reps as you can and you're building muscle. But after, after that, you know, after you go through that phase and every guy goes through that phase, <laughs> then you begin to build your body for life. And higher reps, lower weight, decrease your risk of injury. You're much more likely to do exercises properly than when you put on huge amounts of weight. And you can also get some cardio because you're, you're bopping between sets pretty quickly. And so that's, you know, that's, that's ABC. Now you can, I like to do rowing. So I usually do a day of rowing in there or, you know, if you have access to a swimming pool and you're a good swimmer. And then the other thing is when you exercise, you got to sweat, right? So I have guys like, well, you know, what exercise do you get? Well, I go for a walk with my wife. Well, do you sweat? No, but we go for a walk, two miles. That's leisure, right? Exercise is sweating, you know, getting into the gym, doing some grunting, sweating, you know, loud music. That's putting the effort in and you're going to burn 500 calories an hour doing that. And remember, half you guys out there are going to be obese or fat. You know, that's just statistics. No one gets away from statistics, right? But we have control over what we put in our mouth. We have control over our, our exercise. It's all about what you make as your priority. Yes. And you want your 50-year-old self to look back on your 25-year-old self and say, dude, you hooked me up. You know, you put down that bag of Doritos. You, you didn't drink that beer. I, I really should talk a little bit about alcohol. Alcohol is four things, right? First of all, alcohol is like so incredibly ingrained in our society, mm -hmm. right? You know, Super Bowl's coming up. I don't know if they still do this, the Bud Bowl, right? What's that? Oh, it's like a big advertising thing, you know, like Budweiser versus Bud Light. And they, okay. there's, I, I don't know who's sponsoring the, the Super Bowl this year, but, you know, invariably there's going to be alcohol companies that sponsor the Super Bowl. So when you're 20s, you drink beer, you go to the game. And then when you're in your 30s or 40s or 50s, you drink wine. You know, we're close to Napa. People are spending in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars a bottle for bottles of wine, right? And then, you know, you go out with your buddies and you drink whiskey or bourbon or that kind of stuff. You know, it's just, it's a societal expectation and it's just ingrained by all the advertising that we see. Okay, but let's figure out what actually we're doing to ourselves. Okay, first of all, it's a depressant. So if you look at the category of drug alcohol is, it's a depressant. So it's going to depress your mood. It's going to depress your energy. Okay, second of all, it disinhibits you, right? Most of the stupid things that we've done in life, and every guy shakes their head, yep. <laughs> we've done under the influence of alcohol. I said that to a patient one time, and he was kind of a light-skinned African-American guy, and he started, like, tears started dripping down his face, and he pointed to this big scar that he had on the side of his face that I didn't really see because of his coloring. But, you know, he probably got in some bar fight or whatever, and he was just kind of reliving this really painful episode he had had in his life. And 50% or no, I think 
almost 90% of domestic abuse involves some sort of alcohol. 50% of automobile fatalities involve alcohol. I mean, if you just eliminated alcohol from your life, you would eliminate the potential for so many devastating problems. Mm -hmm. And then third of all, alcohol is empty calories, right? So a calorie is a unit of heat. It's energy that we bring into our body. And alcohol is a lot of calories and no protein, no building blocks of any muscle. It's just pure calories. And when your body brings in too many calories, it stores them and it stores them as fat. It just makes us fat. So, you know, with a lot of my patients that are wine drinkers that are overweight, I do this little math problem with them. I have them take out their iPhone. A glass of red wine is 125 calories. So two glasses of wine is 250 calories. You multiply that times the number of days in the year and then divide that by 3,500, which is the number of calories per pound of fat. And drinking two glasses of wine or having two beers a day is going to put on 26 pounds of fat each year. So I look at these guys that are 25 pounds overweight and I say, if you stop drinking two glasses of wine a day, you'll get back down to, to normal body weight. I really like the math. I think that makes a lot of sense to me. Little numbers always speak a good story to me as well. Yeah. And if you shared it that way, I'd be like, yep, that totally makes sense. If I'm trying to lose weight, all I need to do is eliminate this one fraction of my diet right now. And if I do that, mathematically, I should hit what my weight loss is, is supposed to be. Yeah. I mean, it's, you can't tell guys what to do. There's like a joke. How do you get 50 Canadians off the bus? You ask them, right? But you know, if there are 50 Americans on the bus, the Americans would be like, screw you. I'm not getting off the bus. In fact, give <laughs> me a soda, you know, and make sure there's ice. Yep. <laughs> right. You can't tell guys what to do. You tell guys, stop smoking. They'd be like, screw you. I'm going to smoke if I want. But if you tell them, you know, did you know that Smoking will take 13 years off your life expectancy. You know that smoking will affect your ability to get an erection. You know, do you know that if you get bladder cancer, they take your bladder out and you have like a pouch, a bag made out of intestine that urine spills out from? You don't have to tell too many things before a guy's like, well, maybe I don't want to smoke. You know, if that's what could happen to you. Like, I don't have to tell guys what to do. I just present the information. And then when they make decisions on their own, it's a much better decision. Yeah. And they're much more likely to stick with it. And, and I'm guessing you don't really have the time to make sure men are following through with no the direction way, you No way, man. Gave I got my own problems. <laughs> are you kidding me? I got four teenage kids. I got a wife. I got three companies. I got tons of patients. I don't have time to deal with other people's problems. I got my own problems, right? I give my patients a map of how they can get from A to B. And B is like a really good place where they've lost weight, they've built muscle, they have much better sexual function, they feel much better about themselves. But how they execute on that, there's not enough hours in the day for me to go around and, and harass people. You know, when they come to the office, I... I chat them up and I make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing and they give them a little dose of inspiration. But I got my own problems. I mean, that's, the, that's one of the things I've learned in life. And I think that's a really valuable lesson for your listeners is everyone's got problems. Mm -hmm. Nobody gets out of this without problems, whether it's relationship problems or emotional problems or mental problems or physical problems or problems we don't even know about. Don't 
go on to social media and look at people's pictures and think that their lives are so much better than yours. I mean, I, I love, I feel bad for the guy, but that, uh, not Brad Pitt. Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp, right? Like that trial with Amber Heard, right? You look at the guy, you're like, oh, he's a good looking guy and he's a movie star and he's getting all these hot chicks and he's got tons of money and holy crap. <laughs> yeah. The stuff that came out in that trial. I was like, I wouldn't trade my life with him for, in a million years. But before that trial, how many people would say that? A lot of people. <laughs> right? So here's like one of the top good looking guy movie stars with every, it seemed like he's got everything and he's got nothing. He's got less than you. I know. <sighs> yeah. I think I'm on the right side of the coin here. I, I don't really want to trade my life for definitely a random pick, but honestly, even somebody that I would know, because you just don't know other people's problems. Truly. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I tell people like, okay, this is what you need to do to solve your problems, but I'm, I got my own. So you rattle off the eight things to have a healthier life than 90% of people in 10 seconds. And the last one is be kind to people. And I haven't heard you ever explain what you meant by that. And you are a man of science as well, which makes me want to question this one a little bit more than some of the other ones, because I, I see the through line there. What does Oh, yeah. Well, there's a really, yeah, there's a really interesting study. It's called the Harvard Longevity Study. There's a great TED Talk on this. And it's the largest and longest running study of men ever done. And what they did is they took like a couple hundred Harvard students and a couple hundred kids from Southie, which is kind of the crappy part of Boston. And they followed their lives. And they looked at, you know, their health and their relationships and their mental health and their financial health, they, like every aspect of their life. And then they followed their kids and their kids' kids and their kids' kids. You know, it's like John F. Kennedy was in the study. It's like a very, very famous study. And what they found is the single most important thing in life for living a happy, healthy life is the quality of your relationships, mm. right? More important than taking an aspirin a day or exercising or or you know, when you get your colonoscopy, it's the quality of your relationships. And so that's why I put in, be nice to other people. Because if you're nice to other people, I think you'll probably have a better chance of having good relationships. No doubt. How's that show for you personally? You know, what's difficult is the balance, the work-life balance, right? You know, we're all sort of hunter-gatherers, guys go out into the workforce, you want to accumulate as much as you can. You, you're, a lot of us are you're sort of worker, workaholics, but on the flip side, you have to understand what your responsibilities are at home. You know, I have four kids, I have a wife, I have family. And so that balance is really hard. This chapter in my book called The Work-Life Balance that's written really well. And I, I actually write some of the chapters that, you know, my colleagues wrote for me in the book. When they're really important to me, I write sort of my own little one or two page blurbs. And I talk about a work-life pendulum. For me, it's not a work-life balance. Mm -hmm. That idea that there's like a perfect balance between work and life, I think is someone's fantasy. I don't think there's ever been a day where I'm like, oh, today I struck really a perfect balance between work. To me, it's a <laughs> pendulum, right? So it swings, you know, you're working a little too much, or maybe you're spending too much time away from work and you're not making enough money, right? So as it swings back and forth, now, if you swing to the point where you're not working enough, you know, you'll be homeless or you won't be able to, you'll be foreclosed on. And if you're, you're swing to the pendulum where you're working way, way too much, you know, your wife and kids are going to leave you. So, you know, there's the extremes of the pendulum. And 
in the meantime, you just want to keep it somewhere in the middle where, you know, you're working enough to pay the bills and, and to put some away, but you're spending enough time with your family that they still like talking to you. And, and, you know, I certainly have not mastered that. You know, there are definitely times where I work too much and there's definitely, I tend to work beyond the working more and <laughs> goofing off less. Yeah. How does the, the man that runs three companies has four teenage kids and a wife at home make time for personal relationships or friendships as well? Yeah. I mean, I'm an efficiency freak. Okay. And, you know, I've, I've sacrificed a lot of things. Like I used to watch sports. Mm-hmm. I don't watch sports anymore. Yeah, me neither. It's kind of a bummer. You know, I do. You know what? I found this thing on YouTube. You can watch like football games in 12 minutes. <laughs> really? It's great. Yeah. So like it has like all the highlights kind of backed up against each other. So in the morning I go, I work out and then I watch like the 49ers game or, you know, my did residency at UCLA and my daughter goes to UCLA. So I watch the, you know, the basketball game in 15, 20 minutes. And so then I'm up on, you know, I, I watch the whole game. I don't want, I don't care about watching commercials. I don't watch extra points or guys scratching themselves. You know, I just watch the essential parts of the game, which is fun. That makes sense. So, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I have friends, but you know, you'll, you'll find when you're in your forties, fifties, sixties, it's harder to, to do, you know, if you, if you have one kid or two kids or no kids that, you know, that's, but I have four kids, mm-hmm. you know, so that something had to give. Yeah. I, I'm 29 now and it's beginning to be a challenge on my side as well. You just like, don't, you're not surrounded by classmates and teammates and, you know, all of these opportunities to always oh, yeah. be making new friendships and, and hanging out and doing all these things. And now that I'm 29, I find myself having to intentionally make time for friends and get uncomfortable and ask people like, Hey, do you want to hang out? Like I'm feeling kind of lonely this weekend. <laughs> it's like, it's yeah. hard. It's funny when you get married, the average wedding has 150 people. There's like a very specific reason for that. Like we can keep about 150 people in our brain. Mm-hmm. If you look at your wedding pictures 10 years later, I guarantee you, you'll be in touch, you know, in close touch with maybe 10, 15% of those people. Yeah, that makes me sad. It, but it, that's just the way it is. It's just what yeah. life is. You know, when you that have is. kids, your universe just gets really small. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm interested to keep trying to solve that problem, but that's not going to be a problem for you and I to solve today. Well, just keep practicing. Yes, there we go. As we're concluding this conversation, I do want to spend a little bit of time on your expertise, which is penis health. And I know we probably don't have a lot of listeners that are struggling with erectile dysfunction. You know, like waking up with, a, with morning wood and having routine sex is, is probably the norm for the majority of us. But rattling off your stats on the 40% by 40, 50% by 50s, I, I don't want to fall norm to that. So what are some things that I can be doing right now to prevent ED in the future? Yeah, I mean, the best thing to do to prevent erectile dysfunction is also the best thing to take care of your overall physical health, which is eating well, exercise, especially cardiovascular exercise, not smoking, don't drink too much. I mean, I would say don't drink at all, but certainly don't drink to excess and get good sleep. Sleep is really, really important. I have tremendous respect for sleep that I never had before. And the reason for it is couplefold. First of all, at night you get erections, right? You get 30 to 60 minutes of erections every night. That helps your penis stay in shape, right? You ever see that TV show, Naked and Afraid? I haven't, but I know oh, the Oh, it's a great, great show, right? So I, I've watched 
40 episodes, right? I've never once seen the guy and the girl have sex. They don't do it on the show, I heard. No. Well, <laughs> but why? Because they spend their whole time trying to find food. You know, they don't call, they can't call up Uber Eats and have Uber Eats deliver a burrito, right? They got to, they got to kill food. That's a lot of work. And they got to make shelter and they got to boil water and they got to figure out how to make clothes for themselves and they got to keep warm and they got to do all those things and they got to swat in. The worst thing is the insects, right? So there's no time to have sex, right? The only time animals have sex is when there's an overwhelming hormonal drive to have sex so that they forget the other activities that they're engaged in and they have sex. Right. So in order to keep your penis healthy, you get nighttime erections. But I have I've had young patients come in who have, you know, obstructive sleep apnea or sleep problems and they have early erectile dysfunction. Second of all, that's when your body makes testosterone. So if you look at the circadian rhythms of testosterone production, it's highest first thing in the morning. So if you ever get your testosterone checked, you got to check it first thing in the morning because that three o'clock, four o'clock, you know, siesta time. It's because your testosterone bottoms out. And it doesn't go back up till you go to sleep and your body starts making testosterone again. Mm. And then eight o'clock you wake up and your testosterone's high again. And then the other thing that happens is you build muscle, right? When you go to the gym and you're working out, you're just tearing muscle down. It's not until you start sleeping that the muscle gets rebuilt. So if you're not sleeping well, then your muscle's not getting rebuilt. So it's, kind of a bravado when you're younger, like, oh, I can get by on four hours of sleep, five hours of sleep. But guess what? Your testosterone is going to suck. Mm -hmm. Your erections are going to suck. Your muscles won't get built. All that time in the gym that you put in, you just waste it. You're not optimizing muscle building. And so that's why sleep is in there as one of those nine things that, that are simple to do. You know, it doesn't cost anything to sleep. It's definitely my primary focus in terms of all the different areas that you can spend when it comes to, to health. Eight hours of good sleep on a routine schedule and an ideal environment is something that I have found to be godsend for me. And like, it is very hard whenever I go to bed late one night because I'm out and I got to wake up the next morning. The next day is just a shot. Like, it's just useless for me, I feel like. But what about any advice from somebody that sees a lot of patients that might have done some damage to themselves 10, 20, 30 years and wish they could take it back. And I'm thinking PEDs or any kind of boosters, things like that, that 20, 30 somethings might not be thinking through. <laughs> yeah. So I have a bunch of ebooks. So if you go to my website and go under media and drop mm -hmm. down to ebooks, I have a great ebook on performance enhancing drugs because I've seen a lot of guys mess themselves up really, really badly. If you're, if you're getting something from gym bros and you're putting it in your body, please, 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 this doesn't cost you a penny, right? I look for a, a PED, a performance enhancing drug book that I could read to learn about it because I saw so many guys really messing their fertility up. They can't have kids, messing their long-term testosterone production up. So they have to be on testosterone for the rest of their lives, right? You can really mess yourself up for the rest of your life by taking some of these performance enhancing drugs. And I didn't understand all the things that guys were doing and taking. And so 
I tried to find a resource. I couldn't find a resource, so I just wrote one. Mm. And so just go to my website, which is Brandeis MD, and then go to media, drop down, and then go to ebooks. And there's a performance, there's one that's called About Testosterone, which you should read first. Then read the performance and enhancing drug one, and you'll understand what the gym bros are doing. Get an idea of what they're taking, but also the side effects. You know, like guys that are on DECA, you know, they look huge. But guess what? There's something called DECA dick. Right? So all these gym bros that are pumping up on DECA, you know, they're impotent. That joke's on them, sort of. <laughs> you know? Or, you know, all these guys, huge guys are taking Winstrol, right? But it makes you infertile. So, you know, you, you look like there was a guy in, on the football team when I was in college at Brown University. They said, uh, looks like Tarzan hits like Jane, right? You know, That's funny. these big gym bros that are taking Winstrol, but they can't have kids and they can't make their own testosterone and the liver's messed up. I just feel bad for any of them that are doing that, that just lack education and that they don't necessarily realize some of the long-term effects that doing that might cause. I mean, I, I think that's just reckless, to be honest, but I want to have, you know, put some rose-colored glasses on and realize that maybe some just don't understand because they're getting it from Big Mike and Big Mike said it's fine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, that's, the, that's the issue. I mean, I, I take care of a ton of law enforcement guys, you know, police, fire, SWAT. These guys are getting it from gyms and they're getting it from Mexico. Right? I mean, you know, the other thing against Mexico, and, you know, I, I love Mexican people uh, and I love Mexican food, but I don't get my medications from Mexico. <laughs> right. Dr. Brandeis, this, this has been a fun conversation. I feel like we have a ton to still explore together. Yeah, at some we point just kind of scratched the surface. But. I know, we really did. But I feel like you delivered a lot of really great 101 content, which is actually what I really was hoping for this conversation, being somebody that's in their 20s that learned so much from researching you. At some point in time, when erectile dysfunction becomes an issue, we can have a further, more in-depth conversation in that space. But you have a great book. We didn't really even get to chat about it a whole lot in this. Can you share what your book is, who it might be for, and, and where they can find it? Yeah, so it's called The 21st Century Man. And it's, the website is the21stcenturyman.com, all written out in letters. And it's by far and away the most comprehensive and medically accurate men's health book. It's not just me, right? I don't know everything about everything. So it's me and 60 of my physician and, and men's wellness colleagues. And it talks about not just physical health, but it talks about mental health. So we have psychologists, psychiatrists talking about depression, anxiety. There's a whole section on addictions. There's a whole section on relationships. There's a whole section on inspiration. You know, national me news media guy wrote a chapter on inspiration. There's a chapter on gratitude. There's a chapter on legacy. There's a whole section I wrote on a hero's journey. Susan Bratton wrote an amazing chapter on how to make love to a woman. I mean, it's really like everything you wish your dad had told you about, you know, health and life all in one book. And it's, it's written for men. So it's written in a way that men take in information. I can't stand when I get a book and it's 300 pages. And at the end of 300 page book, I'm like, how come they just didn't get that information in, in, in three pages? I have this new app now called Blinkist, mm -hmm. right? And they summarize books. So like 
in my 10 minute commute, I can listen to a book. But if you made a Blinkist for my book, it would be 40 hours, <laughs> right? Because each chapter is like a Blinkist for the subject that it's on. Like I wrote the chapter on the prostate, right? I crammed so much information, really good. Like if your next door neighbor was, you know, the best urologist in town, this is the information that you would get from them. Mm. And I'm assuming being 900 pages in that long too, this is not a front to back cover read. This is a field guide yeah. manual yeah, yeah. when something comes up. Exactly. You just kind of pick and choose what's relevant to you. And things may be not relevant now, but five years from now, the information will still be super valid and that information will be super relevant at that point. So yeah, you go to 21st Century Man, it's also on Amazon, it's on Audible, it's on ebook, kind of everywhere. Anywhere else you'd like to point listeners to before I ask you my final question? Yeah, so we didn't even get to talk about my crowning recent achievement, which is growing penises. Yes. So why don't you um, share a little bit about it if you have some time? Yeah. So it's called the P-Long study. I honestly, I could care as a disclaimer, I could care less how long guys' penises are, but guys care. You know, more than 50% of guys in surveys say that they want a longer penis or a bigger penis. And the other half of those guys are lying. And guys will do all sorts of crazy stuff. They'll get fillers injected into the penis or silicone, or they'll do fat transfers, or they'll do ligament ligations, or they'll do what's called jelking, which is like this whole technique of pulling the penis for a long time, or they use traction devices or surgeries, silicone implants, you name it, people do it. And sometimes with really, really disastrous consequences. And so those are the guys that my heart goes out to, right? You know, if that's what you want, if you're insecure about, what you have, and you're willing to do something about it, let me find something that's safe. Let me find something where you won't really hurt yourself doing it. And so that's what the P-Long study was all about. And so I created a protocol using a traction device, a suction device, platelet-rich plasma, which is filled with growth factors, and my Affirm nitric oxide boosting supplement. And we, we tested it. We had a, a protocol. We got it cleared by the National Institutes of Health and the Institutional Review Board. And at the end of the day, in six months, we were able to grow guys' penises almost an inch in length, a half an inch in girth, and every guy improved in function because we used platelet-rich plasma, which increases blood flow. Mm. And so it's, uh, we have a website, which is p-long.com. And so if you're a guy that's interested in increasing the length, girth, and function of your penis in a way that's totally natural, that doesn't require any foreign substances or permanent fillers or fat transfers, then this is a great option for you. I appreciate the explanation. My final question for you, Dr. Brandeis, if you had the opportunity to teach a 16-week class to a group of graduating college seniors, on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom, what would you teach and how would you teach it? Yeah, I think I would teach relationships. Okay, tell me more. I was surprised on that answer. <laughs> yeah, and I would, I would bring in special guests because <laughs> there are a lot of people that know a lot more about relationships than I do. But I think going back to the, the Harvard Longevity Study, that's the, that's the most complicated aspect of life. And it's the part of life that brings us the most joy and also by far and away the most pain. Mm. And so understanding 
relationships, how to to survive and thrive with them, I think is by far and away the most, I mean, any, you pick up a book and you can learn how to eat. You can pick up a book and learn how to work out. But the thing that makes humans incredibly complex and difficult to understand are our relationships. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I wish they were simpler sometimes, but honestly, lots of joy in life comes from them though as well. So Absolutely. Dr. Brandeis, thank you so much for so much of your time today. It was a pleasure chatting with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right, guys. Thanks for tuning in to that episode. Appreciate you staying to the very end. Dr. Brandeis was an incredible wealth of knowledge. And I love that we like actually just started the conversation out just with some of the basics. Like, how do you make the most of your doctor's visit? Like, you only made it and thought about that whole thing right there. I love his analogy with your attorney or your accountants. You wouldn't waste their time. Why would you waste your doctor's time? And I've done it so many times. I've just been chatting, catching up in life. And then all of a sudden, we only spend two or three minutes on what I'm actually there for. So I thought that was great. He does another great job breaking down those eight things to be 90% healthier than all people and still surprised that be kind was the very last thing. And I thought he really brought it home with that final question as well, where he would teach relationships. Somebody that has spent 20 plus years in healthcare wants to teach about relationships. I think his book's well worth checking out once again. 21st century man, all spelled out. I'll put that in the show notes as well. And then we did not really get to talk too long about his P. Long study as well. But if that's something that fascinates you as well, p-long.com. Once again, all the mentions in the episode will be in the show notes along with the podcast description right now as well. So thanks for tuning in and we're out of here. Thanks guys. Thanks for listening to the episode. As always, I appreciate your kind words. If you want to leave us a rating and review on your podcast player right now, that would absolutely make my day. If you want to find episode show notes, our blog, and other great resources, head over to tsirpodcast.com. If you have follow-up questions, an idea for a future episode, or just want to say hi, we have a contact form on our website, and those messages go straight into my inbox, and I promise you, I will reply. But all right, guys, I really appreciate you tuning in. I love you all and you're not alone. Let's keep making it through our struggles together.